Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. For the wickedness has come before me. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. And there was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us, that we perish not. And they said unto every one to his fellow, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause is this evil upon us? What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee? that the sea might be calm unto us, for the, sea wrought, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it is pleased, as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. For those of you waiting, and I'm specific here perhaps with the younger folks, For those of you waiting for the part about the fish, it's coming. Hang in there. We're not going to get to the fish quite yet. I would like for also just to bring your attention, young folks. While I I know that the fish is, is kind of an exciting part of this particular book, I want to remind you it's not the main part 
of the book. Okay? But we're getting there. We are getting there. Today we're going to look at verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. We left Jonah last week fast asleep at the bottom of the ship. In Jonah, chapter 1, verse 3, we saw a crisis brewing. Remember that at the point of disobedience, you have a crisis, what we talked about, a crisis of the heart brewing with the Lord at the point of disobedience. In Jonah 1, verse 4, then the Lord sends out a great wind on the sea, causing a mighty tempest. The crisis brewing has turned into now crisis magnified. There's imminent danger on board. The divine storm has come upon Jonah and all of the mariners aboard ship. In Jonah 1 verse 5, crisis management begins. Flowing out of fear from this God-breathed storm, the mariners begin crying out to their own gods. And they begin unloading and throwing off cargo from the ship to lighten the load. And then the final picture that we received last week from Jonah 1.5 is Jonah's initial response to this divine storm. A storm, we need to remember, that is intended primarily for Jonah. Jonah is found fast asleep at the bottom of the ship. So with a divine storm at hand and his crew scrambling to hold the ship together, the captain makes his way. And you might picture a purposeful pace in his walk as he makes his way down to Jonah. As the captain of the ship, I believe it's good for us to remember he's responsible for those on board. He's responsible for the ship. He's responsible for leading the crew through the crisis at hand. And the captain is taking every measure he can to bring the storm to an end. To try and find out more about this particular storm. It seems like up to this point, there's something about this storm. It's unlike any other storm the captain's been involved with. And so we get to verse 6. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. You know, I got to thinking, as the captain made his way down to where Jonah was sleeping, I wonder what the captain thought he might see as he was going down to find Jonah. I wonder if he had a picture of what Jonah might be doing. And I wonder how many thoughts were swirling through his head as he heard the great wind and witnessed the violent waves crashing the ship, threatening to break it up. 
He goes down and he finds Jonah sleeping. What do you mean, sleeper? Excuse me, sir. No one is going to be sleeping on board at this time. This is no time to sleep. What do you mean by sleeping? Arise, get up, and call on your God. We don't oftentimes think about it from the perspective of Jonah at this point, but I couldn't help consider this. When you're fast asleep and someone comes in, pulls open the curtains, yanks the blanket off of you, pours water on you, whatever it may look like. When you wake up from that kind of disturbance, you're typically not in a good mood. I'm not. I'm just going to be right. I'm going to be very straightforward. I'm not. I don't know that too many of us are. And, and I, want to, I want to put that forward because Jonah is fast asleep. And the captain comes down, sees him sleeping. And you get the idea there's a verbal chastisement. Arise. Get up. Call on your God. You know what's interesting here is that the captain doesn't call Jonah to go help out on deck clearing the cargo. We need some help throwing stuff overboard. We, we go up there and help people out. He calls Jonah to prayer. Think about this for just a moment. This pagan... Mariner, captain, calling Jonah to prayer. I believe there's a lesson here from the captain. A man of the world is instructing a man of the word. <laughs> hmm. A pagan captain giving orders to a man of God, calling him to prayer. And so just as we left last week in terms of how we go through and manage the crisis, we're going to see two ways in particular that these mariners manage the crisis. And first of all, right here, they're striving to manage the crisis through prayer, through calling on their own respective gods interesting when the moment of crisis comes is prayer a first recourse for you when the moment of crisis comes is prayer encouraged by each person on board your ship let's take your ship and let's say it's your home when something big's happening in your home children do you just allow dad or dad and mom to pray about that? 
dad and mom, do you take it upon yourselves only to pray about that? Or do you encourage and call each one in your home to be diligent to pray about it? Let's get everybody on board and praying about it. Are you found giving prayer lip service? Instead of rising to call on God in prayer, are you found rolling over to go back asleep, spiritually speaking? Are you content with your spiritual slumber? Are you content allowing someone else to lift this up to the Lord? The captain commissions Jonah to call on his God. Why? Well, in short, from the text, to find out what's behind this storm, to stop the storm. There's a desire to get out of the storm. And to this point, none of the shipmates, none of these mariners have had any luck calling upon their gods. Maybe, just maybe, Jonah has a God who will work for God who will work for us. And, and herein lies an issue facing those both inside and outside the church today. We call upon God in times of crises. Not necessarily to seek His will, but to seek His assistance. We call upon God in times of crisis to, to help us get out of a situation. And that situation oftentimes is unpleasant, uncomfortable, and results more times than not in our unhappiness. And yet when a crisis comes your way, when the Lord sends His own version of a great wind into your life, Why do you tend to seek the Lord for your own benefit? Why is it that in going to God in prayer, you have self in mind, your own comfort, your own happiness? In that moment, you want God to work for you, don't you? You want God to work for you. Do you approach your prayers to God in this way? When God doesn't work like you want Him to, what do you do then? Do you stop praying? Try to manufacture an escape of your own? Do you rely on someone or something else to rescue you from the mighty tempest evident in your life? Something that's pragmatic. The idea of doing something, making a decision on something because it works. You know, there may be certain situations where pragmatics comes into play. But, but I, I ask this question. Is your faith resting primarily upon a pragmatic God? A 
a God who works for you and in the manner you want? Is the God of Scripture operating in your situation out of fear of what you might do? Should He not work according to your liking? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The captain of this ship is the leader of the ship. But he's a lost leader. He's operating apart from any relationship currently with the God of heaven. I believe we need to learn a lesson from the captain of the ship. And don't think for a moment that pagans, these mariners, are the only ones who operate this way. Because you see, some of you might profess the right words, but you operate solely from the pragmatic perspective. If it works, if it works for my benefit, the translation there is, if it works out to make me happy. then I'm good with God. The captain and his crew of mariners had come up empty, calling on their own gods. Jonah is called upon to pray to his God. Why? The text says, Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. I want you to notice a couple things here. First of all, there is an assumption that each person has a God. There's an assumption here that each person has a God. The captain approaches Jonah to have him call on his God. The mariners called on theirs. The captain, no doubt, had called on his God. And here in the text, there's this embedded assumption that each one has someone to call upon. There's a general sense of a God, someone apart from yourself, who can help. Whether it's the God that we know, the God of heaven, the God who created all things... Or whether it's a God labeled oftentimes in the world today as the supreme being, a higher power. Whatever label people use to identify this God who can help. Religiosity. Running rampant today, isn't it? You ever hear somebody say, well, you're... You're pretty religious. You ever had somebody hear that, say that? I had someone tell me, it was a few years back, but it's always kind of stuck with me, and it's like, what? The comment, you pray like a pastor. As though, as though my prayer, I, I was taken aback by that statement. And you're religious. What, what, what enables someone to ask that question or to make that statement? 
Or, why are you so religious? Or, wow, you're religious. What is it that causes them to say that? I I believe at some level, it means that, that what you hold to, you actually, at least to some degree, you're making an effort to live out a life of Christ before others. Now, an asterisk here, it is true that you can live out a lie and you can live out a falsehood, right? Many cults are advertising their, their wares today. Some of them come by your door. And you know, the tendency sometimes for us is, is to point fingers at such folk because of their blatant advertising of such falsehood. However, what might happen if each spirit-filled believer in Christ spoke openly and often of their love for Jesus? Do people know of your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, church? Do they know? Do they know that you're here to glorify the King of Kings? Do they see evidence and hear evidence of one who desires to follow in the steps of Jesus? Is there an assumption that the God you serve is manifested through Jesus, his son? Not some vague out there God. No, no, when we talk about, and we're going to talk about this too. There's specific detail involved when we say we serve God. Is there an assumption that the God you serve is made known through the power of the Holy Spirit working in you? But I think secondly here in the text, there's also an assumption that a God can help. Not only is there an assumption that each one has a God, but there seems to be an assumption that a God can help. The captain and the mariners are searching for answers to their current crisis, aren't they? Let's take the situation out of the ship. Let's remove it from the 8th century B.C. setting and let's put it closer to home for just a moment. Do you know of anyone going through a storm right now? I would imagine that many of you here do know someone. Maybe it's you. Have you noticed how diligent these mariners are to seek out answers in the time of crisis? I was reminded of the song you probably heard. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there is no other. Jesus is the way, John 14, verse 6. He's the answer for the world Today, the world is looking, the world is seeking, trying all of these other things, trying to find solutions to the real problems. And they're doing A and B and C and D and they're trying all these things. Don't we, of all people, know the answer and we hold the answers? 
And yet I ask, are we speaking to the world and letting them know the answer is found in Jesus Christ? As you minister to these people around you who are seeking, searching for answers, do you spend more time with the crisis that they're in or the great God you serve? Are you pointing them to follow your God? God of heaven and earth. Are you pointing them that direction? Here, here it is. Are you pointing them that direction so that their lives might be better? Oh, let's be careful. Let's be careful. The God you serve, the God evidenced in the scriptures does not always stop the storm to make you feel better. If the storm needs to continue, God in His sovereignty will allow it to run its course. Why? Because He's a a, a brutal, angry, harsh God. No. Why? Here's why. Because his desire is to make you what he wants you to be. To form you more and more, increasingly more, into the image of his son. And he'll do whatever it takes to do just that. You see, having God in your life is not primarily intended to make your life here on earth more comfortable. I don't see that in the biblical text. I don't see it. In fact, I see quite the opposite. Yet having God in your life, being found in Christ Jesus, that union with Christ we spoke of weeks back in Romans. Having the good deposit within you, the Holy Spirit, this is a guarantee of an inheritance yet to come. Paul writes 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, For our light and momentary afflictions, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3. I eagerly wait for a Savior as a citizen of heaven. That's what I'm looking forward to. I'm living here in the world, but I'm looking at the eternal. I'm looking at the end. I'm looking at the big picture, the things that I don't see. But by faith, I'm living and I'm operating this way. As you help people understand who this God is that you serve. 
please be sure there's clarity. Clarity. God is many things to many people. Amen? Many things to many people. James 2.19 says, even the demons believe in God. Let's be clear on who this God is. Who is this God we serve? I believe there's an aspect of the unity of God itself that's important. Deuteronomy 6, right? Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All right? And they're getting ready, context, they're getting ready to go into a land filled with multiple gods. It's important that we get the message of God being one. But there's also really, when we talk about defining God and looking what the scripture says about God, there's also a triunity of God, isn't there? We see that the Bible speaks often of the connectedness of God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The relational connectivity of the three persons is unmistakable in Scripture. God sent Jesus. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. The Spirit comes in conjunction with the Father and the Son, sending the Spirit. The Spirit points people to the very words of Christ. The Spirit doesn't speak on His own authority, but only that which is given to Him. Do you see the connectedness? This is the God we serve. There's an aspect here of God as man which becomes very significant in being clear with who God is. You see, because Jesus came down to earth, sent from God, Emmanuel, God with us, right? So any discussion of this God, this God of the Scripture, any discussion of this God must, must, must involve Jesus, God's Son. If it's our hope to be clear with those we're trying to reach with the message of Christ, any discussion of God must also include a discussion of Jesus Christ. John 6, 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus says, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 8, 19. Then they said to him, to Jesus, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. John 12, 44 and 45. Jesus says, he who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. Isn't it true that what Jesus is putting on display in the book of John's gospel is the very thing the Hebrew writer says in 1 verse 3, that Jesus himself is the icon. He's the exact image of, of God. So when you see Christ, you've seen him. John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. 
And then there's John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. Here it is. This is eternal life. Listen to what he says. This is his prayer to God the Father, Christ. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, one God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's, that's eternal life, according to what Jesus says. Both, God and Jesus. Not just some vague idea of holding on to or professing, I believe in God. And then we see John's epistle in 1 John 2, 22 and 23. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. They're connected, church. And we must be clear on who this God is that we serve. Any discussions about God must include the Son, Jesus. For it is only through Jesus that we arrive at the Father. So as you minister to others, there needs to be clarity. There are no other options. There's nothing more that needs to be added to Jesus. This is not God and. Okay. He alone is sufficient. He alone paid the sufficient sacrifice, laying down his life for you, nailing your sins to the cross in his flesh granting you a pardon by His grace, giving you everlasting life, justifying you, counting you not guilty, creating within you this new birth. Behold, all things have passed away, and the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. He's given to you the perfect righteousness of His Son. He's adopted you into His family. He's given to you the Spirit of Christ that you might be his witness, his salt, his light, his ambassador, making mention of his name often, proclaiming the wonderful works among the nations, calling all men to a saving knowledge through faith in this God you serve. Church, it's the gospel. And the gospel, what's Paul say in Romans 1? Doesn't this gospel have power to save everyone who believes? Let's be clear on who this God is that we serve. And let's be clear that the God of Scripture is identified within the context of the gospel message. One other note here. Verse 6. The bulk of our time is here in 6. I just, you know, I was having a hard time getting out of verse 6. I really was. There's a lot here. And, and I believe that perhaps there's an uneasiness in the call to pray. I was thinking about this. The captain came. Tells me, Arise, call on your God. Now, it's right here where it's important to remember the context of the situation. I want you to think about it. Jonah has been running from the presence of the Lord. He's walking in willful disobedience to the command of God. And now, the captain of the ship... For his own selfish purposes, of course, is calling Jonah to pray to his God with the hope that he might consider them and keep them from perishing. Question. 
Do you think Jonah had a few doubts about praying to God? Do you think Jonah felt a twinge of conviction upon hearing the captain call him to prayer to his God? You see, when you're walking in disobedience, prayer is not held in high regard. If if prayer is, in its most simplistic form, a, a communication with God, and you're currently running from God, why would you want to talk with Him? How many of you want to talk to God when you're willfully disobeying Him? And now he's being called on the carpet by this mariner, this captain of the ship. Pray to your God, see if he works. But the idea of even praying to his God, calling upon his God right now, ouch. I really believe there's an uneasiness here. (laughs) You see, the captain... While having his own motives for Jonah praying is no doubt being used of God at any rate. Unknowingly to prick the conscience of Jonah. Call upon your God, Jonah. And and I think we need to understand something. The captain was attempting to save his life. He was attempting to save the lives of his mariners and to save the ship. The God that you serve, is able to rescue you from a storm in your life. Yes, he's able. He's capable. He can do that. But that's not the point of it all. God is able to keep you from perishing eternally. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not what? Shall not perish. Everlasting life. Oh, do you see that the captain and these mariners are just kind of scratching the surface? They're close to some things. They're lost, but yet God's using them. And in the midst of using them, he's pricking the conscience of Jonah. Jonah's being chastised and rebuked by a bunch of pagans. No doubt quite embarrassing. No doubt a shot to his ego. So while the captain is speaking with Jonah, bringing him back up into play, I, put, I say into play, putting him back into play, he's not in the bottom of the ship anymore. They're coming back up now. He's putting him into play. Jonah's now well aware of what's going on. In the midst of all this, the mariners come up with an idea. They're going to do their best, by golly, to get to the end of this. They want to find out, get to the bottom, who's behind this storm? What's caused this thing? Someone or something must be responsible for such a storm. And so we read verse 7. Now we go to verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So we saw managing the crisis, how they were doing that. The captain himself manages the crisis by having Jonah call upon his God through prayer, right? Through calling upon your own gods is what they were doing. But we also see right here, They're managing this crisis through casting of lots. Two proverbs here that I think uh, would be good core 
verses to have as we consider casting lots. Proverbs 16, 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In Proverbs 18, 18, Casting lots causes contentions to cease and keeps the mighty apart. Not only do the mariners call upon their gods during the crisis moment, but they decide to cast lots. And notice the purpose for, given here in the text for why they're going to cast lots. That we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. You see, they're seeking to find out the facts of the situation. Who's responsible for the storm? Who's responsible for bringing this situation upon us? They want to get to the bottom of this. They want the facts. They want to know. And so they cast lots. You see, because casting lots was a way for some folks, and if you trace casting lots, what you see uh, a few different occasions where people such as these mariners would cast lots to, to determine, make a decision, to know what direction to go, what we need to be doing, what we need to be about. But there are also times in the scripture where casting lots is done by people of God, right? In conjunction with prayer, time before the Lord, seeking the Lord. We see Numbers 26, lots were cast to divide the land, okay, following the second census. Joshua chapter 7, we spoke of this last week with Achan. God calls Joshua to cast lots. That word actually is not there, but it's, if you look at the text in Joshua, for just a moment, I do believe it's important to even bring this out. But in Joshua chapter 7, verse 14, remember, Joshua's crying out, why'd you do this? And, and God says, Israel, sin, get up off your face. In verse 14, he says, in the morning, therefore, you shall, uh, you shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes, the tribe which the Lord takes. See, they're going to be presenting themselves, and, and in a sense, there's going to be a lot. But it really ties in in a big way to Proverbs 16.33. Because in 16.33, the lot's cast into the lap, but... It's every decision is from the Lord. The Lord's going to determine. The Lord's going to call this person Achan out. And you can picture the scene. When you look at the situation in Joshua. And you see, and you flip the page. And it talks about Joshua rose in verse 16. And he brought Israel by the tribes. And the tribe of Judah was taken. The tribe of Judah was taken. Think about the other tribes breathing a sigh of relief. keep narrowing it down. I say they. God's taking them. God's narrowing them. God's making that decision. And God calls out Achan. See, even in Matthew 27, 35, which is cross-reference to, to the Psalm 22, 18, where the guards were casting lots to do what? To divide the garments. Christ. It's prophesied ahead of time that that was going to happen from, from Psalm 22. And then we see in Acts 1, 23 and 26, these lots are determined, cast here to, to determine who the replacement apostle would be following the death of Judas Iscariot. So while the mariners here in Jonah 1 are on a mission not to seek God's will and purpose necessarily, but their own, God's hand is evident in the text. And in the context of God's discipline, 
He can, if he so chooses, intervene in this particular casting of lots, even though conducted by a bunch of pagan mariners. You see, God is using their casting of lots. For what purpose? Is he not further nailing Jonah down? You're the one, Jonah. Notice that the inquiry of the mariners is quite different from the inquiry of Joshua when Achan is discovered. See, with the mariners, they're simply wanting to know the cause for their trouble. They're looking to piece the facts of the situation together. And Joshua points out the guilt of Achan. I found that kind of interesting as I was comparing the two and looking at those two sections of Scripture. He calls Achan to confess to God his act, which he does. You see, the fact that you've done something is different than feeling guilty over having done something. Admitting to sin and having guilt over that sin because of what God must think about that sin, desiring to repent of that sin, to turn from it, to hate it and forsake it, knowing that it is displeasing to God. Dealing with sin is more than just saying, yes, I did it. And so, notice what the mariners do following the casting of lots. Look at verse 8. They said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Questions are coming. In a flurry. Jonah is now in the interrogation chair, isn't he? He's being questioned. They want to know what's going on. And they want answers. Jonah, either you're the one directly responsible or you have some information for us about the situation. Come on, out with it. And as I was looking at the questions that they ask, I I was jotting down answers to the questions, as best I could tell from the scriptures. And so that first question, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? I am the cause of your trouble. My sin has found me out. Second question. What is your occupation? Answer. I am a prophet of the Lord God, and I was given a mission from the Lord to go to Nineveh to preach against it. I decided instead to go to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. Third question. Where do you come from? I'm from the village of Gath Hefer. We find that from 2 Kings chapter 14. That's where he's from. What is your country? I am from the region of Galilee, just northwest of Nazareth, among the tribe of Zebulun. Fifth question. And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew serving the one God who made all things, including this sea and the dry land. Now those seem to be the best answers to those questions. Or most complete answers to the questions. We see Jonah's response. I am a Hebrew. 
verse 9. Hebrews were that nation of people known to serve one God. Monotheistic people, they were. One God. And the mariners, I'm convinced, would have heard about this God of the Hebrews. Context leads me to believe they did know some things about this God of the Hebrews. This God who had rescued his people from slavery, from bondage, from Egypt. This God who had allowed his people to cross the Jordan River, the Red Sea. This God who had made the sun stand still. The wonderful works of God have been evident, I believe, even to this group of mariners. He says, I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You see, he he identifies himself here. Maybe not an exhaustive identification, but he nevertheless identifies himself. Church, how do you identify yourself? Do you identify yourself by what you do for a living? I'm a plumber. I'm a teacher. How do you identify yourself? Men, I know this is a common question, isn't it? When you get together with other men in the workplace, what do you do? That's one of the first questions people like to ask. What do you do? What are you known for? How do you identify yourself? That's an important question. What God do you serve? Under whose banner are you walking? When the questions come your way, are you going to open your mouth and declare, I am a Christ follower, I follow Jesus, the Son of God, and desire to operate according to the power of the Holy Spirit. I desire to give God glory with my life, and I desire to take delight in giving God glory. These are not mutually exclusive. You see, the idea of giving God glory and the idea of taking delight in such a thing, as a child of God, it is not only your objective to give God glory, but to take delight in doing. My identity is enveloped in Christ. Now, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Ephesians 2.5 says, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. You see, your identity ought to impact the way you walk. It ought to impact the way that you talk. It ought to impact the heart and mind, how you think, the motives that you have. Identifying with Christ was a matter of life and death, church, in in the days of Jesus. When a person was baptized into Christ, that meant something. It meant allegiance to Christ, loyalty to Christ, a willingness to walk after Christ no matter the cost. And lives were on the line when you declared, I follow 
Jesus. You see, because many in the world hated Jesus. And because of that, identifying yourself with this man could be life-threatening. Do you see the stakes? The stakes are high today. Have you grown apathetic in your identity with Christ? Has your voice for the Lord faded into the background? Have you grown content with a passive identity in Christ? A a secret agent Christianity, if you will. Jonah's words in verse 9 speak volumes to the mariners. And I gather that based upon what we read in verse 10. Look at 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid... And said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. That's really a summary statement. You get the idea that there were more words than what we have here in the text. There were some other words spoken from Jonah to the mariners. Notice that the mariners are exceedingly afraid now upon hearing Jonah's words. If you look back at verse 4. Okay. And 5, verse 5 says, the mariners were afraid. Why were they afraid back then? They were afraid because of the storm. Now they're exceedingly afraid. And they're afraid of this God Jonah is speaking of. This God of Jonah is over the sea in the dry land. We currently happen to be on the sea. It sure would be nice to get to dry land. This is the God who controls the sea. And you can kind of see the wheels turning. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. This God, this, this God controls the sea. This God perhaps will work for us. He may still be thinking along the lines of that pragmatic God, but nevertheless, he's hearing what Jonah has to say about this God he serves. And notice the question that arises for the mariners at this at this point, verse 10. Why have you done this? The mariners asked the question. This is important for us to get. The mariners asked the question, knowing that Jonah had fled from the presence of the Lord. The text tells us that in verse 10. Okay? So what are they getting at here with the question? Why have you done this, Jonah? The mariners called upon their gods. You see, the mariners adhered to their gods. So the thought process there would be, why would Jonah run from the presence of his God? Why would he do that? Why why have you done this, Jonah? Tell us why you would do such a foolish thing and run from your God. If he is who you proclaim him to be, why would you do this, Jonah? And so the question is pressed firmly to the one who confesses Jesus as Lord today. Why have you done this? Why are you living inconsistent with the faith you profess? Why are you profaning the name of the Lord by your disobedience? Why are you giving the name of the Lord a bad name by your own action? You talk one way, you act another, you don the mask, you play the role of the hypocrite. And the worldly mariners see the prophet running from his God. 
Isn't that an incredible picture? In the time of crisis, church, run to God, not away from Him. The world is watching you. If you are in Christ, the Spirit of God is guiding you back to the things of God, to walk according to the truth of His commandments. If you're a child of God, you will delight in God and delight in His Word, panting for His Word like the deer, panting for streams of water. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness, child of God? Why have you done this? Why have you done this? If you stand apart from God today, apart from a relationship with God's Son, Jesus, I pray that this morning you would consider the question and consider the eternal implications of life without God, life without Christ. All other gods are futile, they're empty, produce no fruit, no life, no lasting eternal results. For those of you here today who stand in Christ and find yourself on the run from God. You see, I don't ever want to stand up here believing, preaching from the assumption, from the standpoint that everybody here sitting in a chair has got it all together and their lives are great and they're wonderful. And we come in and we smile and we have this plastic smile and we tell everybody, how was your week? Oh, it was great. Good, so was mine. No, it wasn't. If you're in Christ and you're here today and you're running from God, why? Why have you done these things? Why have you done this? Why are you running from the one who rescued you? Colossians 1, 13, 14 says the one who called you out of darkness and into that marvelous light? Why are you running from the one who bought you? Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You were bought with a price. Repent today. Turn from your running and deception. Turn from the ways of the world that seemingly right now has your attention, has that hold on you. Turn from your old ways and return to your first love. Call upon Jesus. Rest in Him. Cast your cares upon Him. Let's pray. Father, we read this book of Jonah and can't help but see your heart in this book. Can't help but see your fingerprint. 
can't help but see the way in which you're working and weaving your way, your will to be done in this context. And Father, all the while Jonah feels like he's running from the presence of the Lord, we see that you are pursuing him. And that, Lord, you'll use whomever to get our attention. You'll discipline us and chastise us in the way that you deem best, you deem appropriate. Father, I pray that we would come to the realization as we read your word that you are the almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth. That we would come to the realization that you have all things under your control. Father, I pray that we would truly rest in you. That, Lord, where there are people today running from you, Lord, they would stop with the running. That they would turn from their running, turn from their perversity, turn from their wickedness, their sin, and repent before you and desire no longer to walk that way, but to walk in the way that you've prescribed for them to walk according to the commandments of the word. Oh Lord, I pray that your word would be for for each of us, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the instruction that you give to us in your word. I thank you for how profitable it is for our soul. Able to save. The power to save. Oh, Lord, thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who you are, God. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would be, as a church, we would be very clear when we speak of you. We would be very clear according to the word who you are and be able to define and speak of you as your word speaks of you. Help us, Lord, to open our mouths when called upon to identify ourselves. Father, I pray that we would be reputable witnesses for you, that we would be ambassadors who serve you well here on earth while we await eagerly a Savior. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you for the life that you've given to us through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.